Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. It's good to worship God. And uh, I know we're missing a few this morning. Definitely feel a big gap right here up front. And uh, I think Al's watching on the live stream and certainly hope he feels better very, very soon. Uh, He's on our minds for sure. Uh, Also, thinking of all those who will be traveling and doing what what you do for the the holiday week, uh, be safe and, and certainly remember who you are and and our creator as as we celebrate all that he has all that he's done for us. Hopefully we do that on a constant basis. We consistently think of how God has blessed us and give thanks, but uh, this gives us pause and gives us an opportunity uh, to make sure that that we are doing that. And so I'm grateful for for this week. Uh, this morning um, I want to talk to you about a passage from the Gospel of Luke. And Al and I have been studying the Gospel of Luke together each week. Uh, for the past past several weeks, we've been studying together pretty much since we got here uh, to Sycamore. Uh, but this this most recent book that we've been looking at together is the Gospel of Luke, and I've really enjoyed studying the entire book. I think it's it's a fascinating gospel. There are some themes that Luke specifically brings out that that are uh, very powerful and unique uh, among the gospels. But this week there was a section of text that we looked at that just wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> just kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking about it in truth because I was convicted by it. I found it very challenging. And that section of text is the account of Jesus healing a centurion's servant in Luke chapter 7. I had a text I planned to preach from this morning, actually, that was not this text. But I decided to shelve that and save it for another week because I just couldn't get this passage out of my mind. And so today what I want to share with you is some of the lessons that, that I've learned from the centurion described in Luke chapter 7. Because I truly believe these are things that we all need to hear and we all need to consider when it comes to the way that we live our lives and the way we serve our God. So as you're opening your Bible to Luke chapter 7, if you're not already there, let's consider a little bit of background about this centurion. We don't know his name. We really don't know a lot about him in terms of typical biographical information that we normally think of, you would include in a little short bio that you want to read about a person. We just don't know that kind of information. But we do know some key things based on the fact that he was a centurion. And those things, I think, help us grasp the weight of this account more fully. You can see the wisdom of the Spirit in what he did not lead Luke to include, and what he did lead Luke to include about this man. Because I think Judging by the fact that he was a centurion, the things that we know about him really help us understand the impact of this account. So being a centurion, this man was a Roman, of course. Not only that, but this man was a leader in the Roman army. That's what a centurion was. They had charge over a unit of 80 to 100 soldiers. He would have had a lot of these soldiers under his command. And it seems his military position, being a centurion, would have likely marked him as a Roman's Roman. I mean, he was very patriotic, dedicated to the Roman Empire. And the impression I got from my reading about this is that most of these centurions were placed in such a position because of their valor and their dedication to Rome. So that tells us a lot about this guy, most likely, being in this position. And so all that being said, this guy on paper would not have been a likely candidate for having an exemplary faith in the one true God. You wouldn't think this would be the guy we would look at and say, we need to be like that. 
Nor would he have been likely a person who would have shown a lot of mercy to people as he dealt with them. I mean, he's a military guy. He's tough stuff. He was promoted because he was so dedicated to fighting Rome's battles. You wouldn't think he would show other attributes of a godly person as he dealt with other people in in gentleness and kindness and love. But as unlikely as we might think it would be that this man would have had faith in God and would have pleased God in his conduct, that is exactly what we find he did as we read in Luke chapter 7. So I'd invite you to to consider Luke chapter 7 this morning with me as we consider the, the story of the centurion who wanted his servant to be healed. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of Luke chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, uh, sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. That phrase speaks volumes to how Jesus viewed this man and what he thought of him. This man had the kind of faith that the Jews, Israel, should have had, but did not have in many cases. This man was the kind of example of godliness that the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, should have been, but were not. It is truly an amazing account of an unlikely person who showed these attributes. And the reason I think this man's example is so valuable for us is that maybe sometimes we are a little bit more like the Jews who weren't what they ought to have been than we would care to admit. And just as the Jews should have had the kind of faith this man had but did not, maybe we ought to consider his example and see if even this Roman who was not the most likely candidate for having exemplary faith in God, can show us things that we too lack in our own faith as we try to serve God. And so there's a lot here that we can consider about the centurion and what he, what he does, what he says. But the first exceptional thing I think we can notice here is that the centurion highly valued his servant. He valued his servant. He said, this is said about him in verse 2. He had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And servants would have been very low on the social ladder of the Greco-Roman world. They would have been despised by many people, looked down on, not treated particularly well. And yet, this man is said not just to have tolerated his servant or provided for his basic needs. This says, this man valued his servant highly. That seems unique based on what we know about the culture of that time. 
But not only is he said to value him highly, because you could say, oh, I love my servant, but you don't show it. And you treat him like any other servant. But this man doesn't do that. He shows that this is true of him by the lengths that he was willing to go to seek his healing. I mean, he's using his influence and his relationships with these Jewish leaders, for instance, to help this servant who cannot help himself. And you think if he's going to cash in a favor with the Jewish leaders, it would be for himself or at least for a family member. But no, it's for a servant. It's for someone who cannot help himself, who is looked down on by society. And that's surprising. That's upside down from what you might expect from a man like this. But in doing so, in highly valuing this servant, this man mirrored the character of God. And that's amazing. He mirrored the character of God who valued servants, who values servants, and values a life of servanthood. We've talked before about how God doesn't see like the world sees. God doesn't look at things like people in the world look at them and how the values of his kingdom are upside down from the values of the world. Maybe that rings a little bit of a bell. And so this man would seem, by his position and by his heritage, to be one who would value things according to the world's standards. You would think he's a Roman. I mean, he would just fit in with the culture of Rome, which values power and position and money and that sort of thing. But he's not. He doesn't look at things that way. Instead, this man shows himself not only to have greater faith than his fellow Roman officers, but even greater faith than those belonging to God's chosen nation. And he does does so by showing great care, great concern, great regard for his servant, the lowest of people. And what this man is doing through this is he's bearing the image of God as he was created to, as we all were created to, by seeking to help and heal this servant who cannot help himself. And that's truly bearing the image of God because that is what God does for us, is it not? We are helpless. We are the lowest of the low when it, when it compares to God, when you look at us in view of who God is. And yet God helps us. God heals us spiritually, even when we cannot do anything for ourselves on that front. We talked about that in our class this morning. So what about us? Well, taking our cue from the centurion, our task is to discard the world's low view of servanthood and show, not only by our words, but also by our actions, like the centurion did, that we believe the life of servanthood is a life of true value and significance. Do we highly value servanthood? When we see others of us among, among our group or other Christians in general serving, do we say that is something to be praised? That is something I highly value. And do we show that in the way that we live our lives? Do we seek to serve above all else? We ought to. And in doing so, if we ourselves will live such a life of servanthood, then what we will do, just like the centurion did, is show ourselves to be true image bearers of God himself as we conform to the image of God the Son, who was the ultimate servant. When God sent himself in the form of his Son to the earth, in what form did he come? He came as a servant. Make me a servant just like your Son. The centurion did that, and so we ought to as well. But not only did he highly value his servant— 
Centurion is also exceptional in that he lived in such a way that others could have nothing bad to say about him. Nobody could, could say anything bad about him, it seems. Now, from history, we know the Jews didn't like the Romans. They didn't get along. The Romans wanted to impose this rule on the Jews, and the Jews had their own culture and their own system, and they wanted to be this independent nation. And so it seems that generally when Jews and Romans were at their best, they tolerated each other. They lived okay in peace and just let each other do their thing. At their worst, they were enemies. They were fighting. You had the zealots who were constantly trying to fight back against Roman rule. But the Jewish leaders themselves say that this man doesn't just tolerate them. He loves their nation. That's what's said. That is remarkable. He loves the Jewish nation. How many Roman military leaders love the Jews? That's unusual. The world would have said that this man ought to consider the Jews to be his enemies. No, really. Militarily, they, they were enemies to be conquered. They were enemies to be squashed and kept in submission. The world would have assumed he would look down on the Jews. But just as he didn't look down on his servant, he didn't look down on the Jews either. He loved the Jews. He loved his enemies. Isn't that something? And again, he didn't just do this through lip service. He showed these Jews that he loved them by financing their synagogue. He built their synagogue. I mean, you can say, oh yeah, I love those Jews. They're great. That's one thing. But for it to impact your pocketbook, that's a whole other thing. But that's what this man did. His actions confirmed what was said about him, that he loved his enemies. So what about us? Do we love the people who the world says we should look down on? Not just in talk, but do we support them financially when they are in need? Do we help them? Do we help them spiritually? Do we take pity on them instead of just passing by and looking the other way as if we're better? Do we act in a way that honors them? Is our conduct blameless to the point that others who would like to see us discredited simply can't find anything negative to say about us. Is that the way we live? Do we fit the description in Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, which says, to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us? Is that who we are? That's who this man was, even in the view of the Jews. The centurion was exceptional, and we have a lot to learn from him in this area. He loved his enemies, and he showed it. What an example. But not only did the centurion live in this, this way that nobody could say anything negative about him, but it gets even more incredible because the centurion shows that he has exceptional reverence for God. If you look in verses 6 and 7, this man did not want Jesus to come into his house. Not because he didn't believe in Jesus. I mean, you could see a lot of people not wanting Jesus to come into their house, whether they're Romans and, now we don't want to deal with this guy who's stirring up trouble, or whether they're Jews who don't believe in him and don't want him muddying up their house with the fact that he's been in contact with sinners and tax collectors, and I don't want this guy associated with me. Uh, maybe he, other people would have not wanted Jesus in their house because why well, don't let him tell me what to do? He goes around teaching people and saying, you need to stop doing that and you need to change, your, change yourself, change your ways and, and stop doing wrong. 
But this man didn't want Jesus to come into his house for a different reason. Because he didn't feel worthy to have Jesus under his roof. He did not feel worthy. I think there's something for us to consider there. I'll say, certainly we are right when we view Jesus as a friend. When we view Jesus as a caring Savior who loves us. Somebody who understands our weakness and sympathizes with us. But this man shows us something else that's also extremely important about Jesus. That he is God. That he is eternal. He is divine. And he is infinitely greater than we are. I think maybe sometimes we lose sight of that. Because we are so blessed to have Jesus as a friend, as someone who sympathizes with us. And so maybe we might think Jesus would criticize the centurion's response to his willingness to help him. Maybe we think Jesus would say, no, 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 you, you don't have to feel that way with me. I, I care. I associate with the lowly. I associate with sinners. I, that's just what I do. It's okay. You don't need to do that. But that's not what Jesus does. He praises him. He praises him and says, this is faith. And that should be a powerful lesson for us. Yes, we can trust that Jesus was human as we are. Yes, we can trust that Jesus is compassionate. Yeah, we can know Jesus cares for us, but we should not grow so comfortable with those facts that we forget the fact that he is also God incarnate a fact which demands incredible reverence from us. When you think about the Jews, as opposed to this Roman, the Jews were used to knowing God. The Jews were used to having a relationship with God. They had had that for years going back, centuries going back, to even the time that we're studying in our Old Testament Torah studies. And yet, having that blessing may have been the very thing that led them not to treat it with the awe and the reverence that God's divine nature commands. And so as we think about the Jews and that potential pitfall for them, I think a valid question is, does that ever happen with us? Most of us here, at least a lot of us here, have grown up in the church, having a knowledge of God and even a relationship with him for quite some time. And even if you didn't grow up in the church, at the same time, most of us have at least been Christians for quite some time. We've enjoyed that, that blessing, and that is a blessing. But like the Jews, does it ever cause us to lose our sense of awe and reverence for who God is and how truly unworthy we are to be in his presence? Do we do this week after week and start to consider it less of a privilege and more of an obligation? Or do we start to consider it less of a privilege and more of just something that is commonplace. It's just us here in this building doing what we do. I think sometimes the significance of what we're doing and of whose presence we are in is lost on us. I mean, when we come before the throne of God in prayer, we use that terminology, but do we realize what that means? When we come before his throne, are we humbled to be in his presence? When we come before God's throne in praise and worship to him, when we're singing are we humbled that we get to do so? I think sometimes we, we criticize outward and physical signs of reverence and respect for God because of the possibility that they could be performed in insincerity. And they, they don't necessarily equate to love for God. Things like using more proper, respectful language in our prayers. Things like dressing in a more respectful 
way when coming to worship God. And yeah, I understand that those things can be done by a person who does not truly revere and honor God in their heart. But when we look at the example of the centurion, what I think we see is this. We see a man who had such reverence and awe for God the Son that he felt he just had to show how great he believed God was in whatever way he could. We are limited in the praise we can give to God. We, uh, we can't give him the praise he deserves. That's not within us to give him all that he deserves, to repay him for what he has done for us, to show him how great he is. But many people around this man would have likely told him, that's not necessary. Jesus, Jesus can come into your house. Like he, he, he goes to these sinners' houses. I mean, come on, you're, you're better than them. But this man decided it was necessary to show Jesus how great he believed he was in the way that he could. And Jesus praises him for that. And so before we criticize people for using fancy language in their prayers, for dressing up for church, maybe we ought to realize whose presence we're in. And that while I'm not here to bind specific expressions of that on you this morning, I think the point is well taken that God is greater than we can possibly imagine. And being in his presence ought to lead us to want to show our recognition of his greatness in whatever way we can. Our ways may be imperfect, but as the centurion shows us, being in God's presence ought to lead us to want to show our recognition of his greatness and to show our gratitude for his willingness to even consider us. So whatever way that works itself out, in our lives. Let's not let the greatness of God be lost on us. Let's reverence God, show our awe for him, for truly he is incredible. But not only did the centurion have this exceptional reverence for God, but I think equally incredible, if not more incredible, is the fact that the centurion believed in the power of God's word. I'm blown away by this. But when you look at the entire Gospel of Luke, and really all the Gospels, as Jesus' miracles and signs are recorded, they are always used in tandem with the Word that he taught. And it seems that the magnitude of Jesus' Word, it wasn't lost on this centurion. The centurion says, but say the Word and let my servant be healed. And he goes on to explain that he understands this because he talks about the soldiers under him who obey his word because his word has power over them. And through this, basically what he's saying is he believes that likewise, even sickness itself is going to obey the word of Jesus because Jesus has power over everything, even disease, even that which is within our bodies. And I think what the centurion has shown is a remarkable understanding of one of the most foundational principles in Scripture the power and authority of God's word. That's what he's showing. I mean, it is by God's word that the universe was created. This is all over scripture. But even the creation narrative in Genesis 1 continually repeats the phrase, and God said, followed by the phrase, some version of it, and there was. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, and it happened. And even in the time of Jesus, the centurion understands that the word of this Son of God has such power that at his word, even sickness and disease are going to yield to him. They're going to obey him because he is over all things. 
And I think he's also an example for us, the centurion, that he doesn't seek a solution in worldly wisdom when it matters most. Verse 2 tells us the servant is at the point of death. Things are critical right now. And where does he turn? Not to the world, not to a doctor, but to the word of God. He says, say the word, and he'll be healed. He believes that Jesus' word is what his servant needs most. I'm not saying we rule out physical cures that God has given us as answers to our prayers, but where do we turn first? Do we understand what the centurion understood? I mean, Jesus is not here in the flesh, right in front of us, speaking to us, but we do have the word of God, just like what the centurion was looking for. And so how do we regard that word? Do we recognize that Jesus truly has the words of life? And that what we most need in every circumstance is to be nourished by his word. Or do we treat the word as a reference book to be consulted occasionally on religious matters? We all know that life is difficult. We know that we struggle here with life. And our struggles can lead us all kinds of various places looking for solutions We can be desperate, and we can be turning wherever we can possibly find some possibility of hope or of help. But the faith of this centurion, the incredible faith, according to Jesus, reminds us that the greatest power is in God's Word, and that we can never go wrong by starting there. Is that where we start? When things go wrong, and we are at our wits' end, and we are desperate, and we need, we need solutions, we want help, we don't know where to turn, where do we go? Do we go everywhere but God's Word, or do we start there? Do we start by seeking God's Word when we need it most? The centurion did that, and so should we. He shows us that what his servant needed most was the powerful healing Word of God. And so it is with us. No matter what we're going through, seek the Word of God. One of Satan's most effective lies, I think, is that our struggles are beyond the Word of God's ability to speak to. That our difficulties are beyond the Bible's ability to handle. The Bible's great for, you know, religious things and figuring out what you do at church, but the Bible doesn't address my struggles, right? I think that's one of Satan's greatest lies in his toolbox. He would have us believe the Bible's great for certain things, but that a lot of things that we struggle with are, are too new and too unique for God's Word to help us with. Well, the centurion shows us something important yet again. And what he shows us is that that lie of Satan's is just not true. Even a man who was not an Israelite understood God's Word is powerful and that that's what his servant needed. Even in such a situation as he was in at the point of death. How much more should we understand that, having the blessings that we have of God's word? How much more should we turn to God's word to help us with any and all of our needs? What a wonderful example this man is for us. I'm convicted by his faith, by his trust in the word of God, and by his belief in the power of it. I'm convicted by the way he treated his servant. I'm convicted by the way that he treated the Jews, by what he did for those who people would have thought would have been his enemies. But ultimately, when you boil it down, what I'm convicted by, said simply, 
is that this centurion fulfilled the greatest commands. He did what God wanted of all of us. Through his exceptional reverence and his exemplary faith in the power of God, this man showed his genuine and deep love for God. You can't see anything but love for God in the form of his son when he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. He loved God, the greatest commandment. He didn't have any other gods before him. You can, you can see him fulfilling the law and the prophets through his love for God. But not only that, the other greatest command, the second that is like it, he fulfilled as well through his concern for his servant and the kind things that we read he did for the Jews. This man showed his genuine and deep love for his neighbors, even for his enemies, living out not only the teaching of the law, but even the teaching of Jesus. It's amazing. And so it's no great surprise that after all this had taken place, what does Jesus turn to the crowd and say? He says, not even in Israel have I found such faith as is in this man. So, may our faith be like that of the centurion. May we care for the humblest and the least of our neighbors. May we look to them with compassion as Jesus had. And may we ourselves live a life of servanthood to all. And then also, may we revere and honor God as this centurion did. May, we, may the, the greatness of God not be lost on us. May our actions and our words in his presence show our reverence and our respect for who he is. And finally, may we submit ourselves to and trust in his power in all things, no matter what comes our way. So maybe you can see, hopefully you can see why I was so convicted by this story this week. I think a lot of times what I was describing about coming to worship, that's, that's me a lot of times. I come here and I focus on what we're doing, how we're singing, whether we're paying attention or not, and I lose sight of the fact that where two or more are gathered, God is here. And I tremble to think that he knows my heart in these situations. And so hopefully, maybe you don't struggle with that like I do, but I think we can all use a reminder of the greatness of God and how much we should be awed to be in his presence. Things to think about. Does this describe your life? Does your life look like like the centurion? Do you have this reverence for God in all that you do? Do you go to God's word, seek his word every time things come up that trouble you, that you struggle with? Or do you go everywhere else looking for answers? Do I go everywhere else? Do we treat servants? Do we treat the lowest in our society with love and respect? Do we truly love our neighbors, not just in word, but in action? Challenging things from the centurion. Hope we can think about those things this week and try to be transformed into the image of Jesus as he showed us all these things, and as he points us to this great example recorded for us here in Luke's Gospel. Appreciate your attention this morning. If there's a spiritual need you have this morning that we can help you with, this time is set aside for that, and we'd love to do it. Uh, While together we stand as we sing.